Well, good morning. If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew rack right in front of you, around you. Uh, ask your neighbor, they'll hand it to you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, we love to hand out the Word of God for the people of God to read it and to grow into the people that God wants us to be. Uh, we're going to finish up our section here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So go ahead, grab that Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to be here this morning. This is Paul's final instruction as he's been dealing with giving. 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 are two chapters all about giving and all about how we handle our money. And uh, if you've noticed throughout the course of Paul's instruction, Paul has consistently done two things to talk about giving in the church. One, he's looked backwards. He's looked at the gift of Christ. He's looked at the response of the Macedonians. He's looked at his ministry and what uh, and how churches have partnered with Paul and the call to care for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And then Paul has looked basically at the present. So he's looked backwards at what other people have done to respond to the gospel. He's looked into their present time and he's looked at the, the amount of money they have. They've give, he's given us how and why and when we ought to give. He's looked at the leaders that we looked at last week who were called upon to take this and minister this gracious, generous gift that's been collected by all the churches. And he looked at the integrity of these men. But one of the things Paul has not done up until this section in the book, or in 2 Corinthians 8 and, and 2 Corinthians 9 is use future verbs. Now, for the, math, the English teachers, I know this is a great illustration. It's really going to hit you. But you haven't been looking at this so much, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but up to this point, all of Paul's verbs have been present or past. And what Paul is about to do <clears throat> is point your eyes into the future. When it comes to how you and I steward money, how we spend it, how we save it, how we investment, invest it. All that you and I are doing is looking into a future time, aren't we? Anytime you save, you are saving for the future. Anytime you invest, you are investing for the future. This is woven into all of our giving. Did anybody have a struggle to decide to be sacrificially generous during the course of this giving without having the temptation to think about their future? Did you feel that? I felt that. I felt that in my own giving. To go, what if my future isn't so bright because of the giving that I do now? And what Paul is about to do is brilliant. It is so what we need to be able to really get the principles of sacrificial, Christ-centered generosity into our hearts. This text shows that God and Paul understand the motivations of our heart because he's about to give us such a powerful encouragement uh, for our hearts to be the kind of men and women that God wants us to be. For God to have this lesson of sacrificial, others-focused, gospel purposes, generosity actually take hold of your heart. Don't you want that? I mean, we've talked about money for now four weeks in this, and I I'm still feeling the tension in my heart about money, aren't you? Don't you want to be done with that? Wouldn't you love to be liberated into being the kind of man or woman that God wants you to be when it comes to your finances? And that's what this text is about. So if you just have all of what Paul has said up to this point, you might go, I got to give because I'm guilty. I got to give because of what I have today. But Paul is about to invite you into an illustration and a picture of the future that is so compelling that it will cause you to want to participate with the money that God has in your hand right now. How about that? That sound good? I think this is a great text, a really necessary text. Uh, it's a text that is uh, wildly abused in prosperity theology circles. So be careful. Uh, interpret it right, because otherwise you're, you know, in trouble. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks again for the generosity that has been displayed over the course of investing our hearts and our finances and our spiritual lives into your purposes globally around this planet. Father, we pray again for Alonzo and for El Lugar Church that uh, as this gift goes to them, that you would multiply 
uh, the seed for sowing, even in their own hands, that you would do things that uh, beyond what we could ask or imagine with our simple willingness to give toward what you're doing there. Father, may many disciples be made. May the gospel go forth. Would people turn in repentance and faith to the truth of the risen Jesus Christ who died for their sins? Would the gospel go forth and that church be strengthened by your power and your grace alone? Father, we love you. We pray for anybody who's walked in here today and who might not know the glorious story of Jesus crucified for sinners and risen from the dead to give us perfect and complete righteousness. We pray that uh, that message would be clear and plain, that the person of Christ would be lifted up, and as you've promised, you would draw all men to yourself. So, Father, as we study and we look at this passage, would you reveal the areas in our lives that we need to change, that we need to reorient according to the truth of your word, and that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, and that we would be able to be what you call us to be in this passage, which is cheerful givers. Father, we can't do that on our own. We ask for your grace to accomplish that through your word and the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Y'all there? Both of you are there. That's good. The rest of you can catch up. 9, 6. The point is this. Now, haven't you, I've been waiting for Paul to make a point, haven't you? He's been dealing with so much heart stuff, so much uh, consider how you ought to give according to what you have. And, and he's put the onus or the responsibility for determining our giving on ourselves. And what Paul is going to do is sum up all of his teaching up to this point with something that I think is incredibly helpful for us to think about. And he's going to give you an illustration. Because illustrations really help to bring the point home. Take all of this theology, all of these uh, principles about giving and generosity and sacrificing for the sake of God's purposes into absolute clarity for us. So here is the point. You ready for the point? Here's the point. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's pretty easy, right? My, my kids like to plant uh, both flowers and vegetables on our back porch. And any time that we plant, we go above and beyond to make sure that we sow the right number of seeds because we have experienced the crop failure of sowing one seed into a bucket and it never coming up. And we come out every morning and we're waiting. And then we're looking and we're watering. And it's like a greenhouse in Charleston anyway. So you think everything ought to grow, and it doesn't grow. And that's incredibly disappointing. But we've also learned the lesson that if you sow bountifully, which means you invest multiple seeds into the bucket or the pot or the trough or whatever it is you plant in, that you are more likely guaranteed to have more plants come up, right? Pretty easy to understand. Now, Paul uses two terms here. One is sparingly, which is sowing a little bit. If you sow a little bit, you don't expect a lot, right? You with me so far? This is a really complex illustration that he starts with. Number two, if you sow bountifully, and bountifully is literally the word that he used just the verse above. If you look in 9 verse 5, he says this, he arranged, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not an exaction, literally a blessing. So all of Paul's instruction up to this point has been saying, this is how you ought to give so that your giving is a blessing. You with me? So Paul says, if you're going to sow, don't sow sparingly, because if you sow from blessing, you will reap blessing. You with me? Okay, so there's Paul's principle. So the question is, when Paul is talking about giving in the church, why does he use this illustration? Wouldn't you expect Paul to use like a tax collector illustration? Wouldn't you expect him to use a financial illustration? Maybe the illustration of compound interest. But he doesn't use an economic or a financial illustration to talk about financial things, which makes me think that the illustration Paul is using, an illustration that you and I can easily see when we go out into the world and into our, into our days, is the illustration of sowing seed and seed coming up. So that Paul will use a creation illustration to illustrate something about our finances. Now, look at, here's the question. 
How do you respond to that illustration? Because what Paul is not doing is saying, sow more, get more. Because it's never been about the amount, right? Giving has never been give as much or more or beyond what you have. That's never been Paul's instruction. So how are you going to respond to this principle? Now, watch him apply the principle in the way he directs them in the next verse. Look at verse 7. Each one. Now, this is a question that has been bouncing around our church ever since we started this series on giving. How much, Steve, should I give? And here is the New Testament answer to how much you ought to give. You ready? Each one. It starts individually. Every single person has to have a conversation between themselves and God. They have to talk to God. They have to look at all of what they have. They've got to ask God, God, what is it that you would have me to give? And they've got to be moved by personal conscience and conviction to write the check, to press the button, to invest in the drop down, to give money away. But they have to do it by deciding in their where? In their heart. Steve, what's the amount? I don't know. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Each one must decide, must give as he has decided in his heart. Make the call. Make the choice. Now watch what he does to ensure that that giving is from a place of authenticity and really good motivation. What you shouldn't give when you're making that decision is you shouldn't make a decision reluctantly. Literally the Greek is from pain. Remember last week we talked about the illustration of a willing gift versus an exaction or a gift that is pried out of the fingers of people who are greedy. You remember that? So Paul says, we don't need to break your fingers for God to get your money. You shouldn't give that way. Nor should you give in a way where there's compulsion, which is pressure from the outside. They're probably related because how often do we feel that emotional, social, relational pressure in our giving? And Paul has been so disciplined to stay away from any kind of intimidation, interrogation, manipulation, uh, social pressure, shame to motivate their giving. He will not do it. Because any giving that comes from reluctance or compulsion is always going to be less than that which comes from generosity. Always. Because you'll always feel like I'm getting a raw deal when I give my money. I'll always feel guilted into it, manipulated into it. And Paul says, you've got to talk to God. You need to have that conversation between you and your heavenly father to say, God, what is it that you would want me to give? Did you pray when you decided to give what you were going to give for the sake of this offering? Yes, right? We all prayed. We asked God, what do I have in my hand? What is an amount that is according to the money that you've put in my hand at this point? And God, I'm going to give out of sacrificial generosity because of who you are and what you've put in my hand. Because all of what I have is from you. So Paul says, this is how you do it. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. You've got to talk to God. It's not a percentage. It's not a taxation. It's not an amount that is forced upon you from the outside. You have that conversation with God and you give. Now, do you see why this teaching is so hard in the church, but at the same time so necessary in the church? Because we can't be a people ultimately ruled by law. I'm not going to guilt you into giving. I'm not going to manipulate you into giving. I'm not going to wring my hands and go, oh, guys, you got you to do better. You got to try harder. You got to give more. God's mad. I heard. I prayed to him this week. He said he's mad at you. You ought to give more. We're not going to do that because that's not from the hearts of people who are moved by the grace of God. So the, this, this is so necessary in our corporate discipleship. You can't, not, can't give reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves, literally, a cheerful giver. God loves. Now here's the question. What if I'm not cheerful? What if I gave and I was disciplined in my giving and I was sacrificial in my giving, but what if during the course of my giving over the past couple of weeks, I was not cheerful? Anybody face that temptation? What happened if my loves and my affection for my material and financial things was disordered? 
What if I wasn't cheerful, but I'd rather I did it because I'm in this church and they're making me? What if that's how we gave? And Paul wants to make sure that the pressure from the outside, the grip upon our finances, really is aiming at a target. See, the target for all authentic, Christian, sacrificially generous giving has got to be a heart that is cheerful. Now, the question is, how do I get there? Right? Don't you want cheerfully to give out of what God has given you? To be so, literally the word is the, it's the root word in the Greek is the same one that we get for hilarity. Hilarious giving. Where's the need? I can't wait to meet it. This is exciting. Let me click the button, write the check. This is awesome. I get to be a part of what God is doing. So it's probably not that God loves cheerful givers more than non-cheerful givers, but it's that God approves of cheerful giving. Something about a cheerful giver fits the perspective of God that we ought to have. Because anytime you're around somebody who's joyfully generous, don't you feel like, boy, they get something about God that I don't get. They understand something about who God is that has yet to work its way into my heart. And what Paul does here next is brilliant because he puts on display the certain temptation that is in our heart that comes to the forefront if we realize we aren't cheerful givers. Now, when we think about giving, I started with this, but I want us to think about it here just for a minute. Anytime that we are giving, we are always giving for the sake of tomorrow's return, right? Very few of us just give recklessly. If you're aware at all about financial matters and about the money that you make, you typically consider the amount of money that you have and you typically know how much you have, how much is coming in or how much is going out. Or you're married to somebody who's way better at that than you are and you rely on them to tell you what's going in and what's going out. And we're all making these uh, disciplined financial decisions for the sake of future gain. But what would so grip our hearts to make us hilarious givers in the present? It must be not social pressure, which Paul just said won't work. Compulsion from the outside and reluctance on the inside won't create a cheerful giver. So it must be that the cheerful giver knows something about God that the rest of us don't. There must be some theological truth in our understanding of God to bring us to the point of cheerful, hilarious giving. Well, what is it? And the answer to that is in the very next verse. Look at verse 8. Because when I give, would you agree that when you give, you have less? You with me? When I give, I have less than when I started. Doesn't matter how much I give. If I give a little bit, I have less. If I give a lot, I have more or less. I think that's grammatically correct. I started with future tense verbs. More, lesser, I think it's lesser-ness. That's the word. It's in the Greek, you figure it out. And the temptation for those of us who give and realize that I have less is to think about our future and to think, I am not gonna have enough later. If I give now and I invest now, there's gonna come a time later when I'm going to be on my own and there's going to be no resources, I'm not going to have the strength or the ability or the financial security to be able to do the things that I want to do later. But a cheerful giver understands something about God that Paul gives us in verse 8, that God is able. Literally, God is powerful. Some of the things that we struggle with, I think, when it comes to the lies that our finances tell us. See, your finances lie to you all the time. Do you know that? No matter how much money you have in the bank, you either hear the lies of, I'm going to be insufficient for the future, or I'm totally competent and sufficient for the future because of the numbers that are in the bank. Constantly throughout the New Testament, Jesus and Paul will talk about the deceitfulness of riches. They'll say that the message that riches preach to you and whisper into, you, into your ear are always lies. 
And when Paul now starts to address cheerful giving, he has to root your cheerful giving in the strength and sufficiency, not of yourself, not of your bank account, not of your relative disciplined generosity in the moment. He has to root your cheerfulness in the power of God. Because because money lies to us, we have a tendency to rely on it too much rather than rely on God. You with me? Don't you do that? I do that. If there's more, I'm safe. If there's less, I'm wobbly. But either way, I have a tendency to remove my reliance upon a God who is sufficient and stable and strong. So God approves of a cheerful giver because God is strong toward the cheerful giver. Do you want to see God flex his muscles toward you and to remind you of his sufficiency, his comfort, and his power on your behalf? Are you willing to open your hands? Because next, what Paul is going to say is he's going to say that God is strong in every single possible scenario that you can imagine. Look at what he says in the verse. God is able to make how much grace? All grace abound to you so that having how much sufficiency? All sufficiency in how many things? All things. Keep going with me. You can do it. And at how many times? All times so that you may abound in, hey, the word is there too, all good works. Now, I just, I want to emphasize that again, that there's no situation where God's power is restricted when it comes to financial matters. None. There's no situation in which the cheerful, sacrificially generous person finds out that God is not also able to meet their needs, to give them grace in every single thing, in every single time, in every single way, for every single good work. Why does Paul overwhelm you with the all adverbs? Because you don't think he's sufficient in your life right now. You don't think he's strong in your life financially right now. You need the reminder when you and I feel the temptation to be stingy and to keep what we have for ourselves. Paul actually is inviting us into a greater experience of God's sufficiency and power in every single quarter of our life. Now watch this. This is great. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency. Now do you have a note in your Bible? You may have a note in your Bible that says sufficiency could also be translated as a different word. You have contentment? Let me read it. Let's read it together. I'll just read it to you. You listen. Let's read it with that word in place. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all contentment in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Now the noun, that word sufficiency is only used in one other place and used in 1 Timothy 6 where Paul says to Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. But the adjective is used over in Philippians chapter 4. So I want to show it to you there. Turn to your right to Philippians chapter 4. In the Greek time This word sufficiency was used in Greek culture to refer to self-sufficiency. Anybody want to be perpetually financially dependent the rest of their life? No. What are we aiming at? Financial what? Independence, right? We desire to get financially, I just like, I would like to give it all up personally and become a handsome billionaire. To walk away from it all and to be financially independent from relying on other people, other places, other things. I would like to be self-sufficient. And that was a high value in the Greek culture. But now Paul is going to use that word and he's going to transform it in the context of our financial giving. And he does so in Philippians chapter 4 and he brings these ideas together for us. Philippians chapter 4, look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The Philippian church cared about Paul again. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am 
to be, there's that word, content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that verse, 413, is not about football, amen? Football just started. What is it in the context of? Well, it's in the context of Paul saying, I can be content, I can be sufficient having a lot of money, having a little bit of money, having a lot of resources, having a little bit of resources. And Paul says in 4.13, look at it again, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's the same root word that Paul uses over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now let's come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's look at it again. God is able, God is strong to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, all contentment in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work. How is it that you are going to actually be content? It is not by discipline. You will not ever be content by looking at the amount of money that you have and saying enough. Or even disciplining yourself to say enough. Rather, what you need is the very power of God to create contentment in your heart. Contentment is too far and too lofty for us to be able to accomplish on our own. Would you agree with that? Maybe that's the first time you heard that. You are completely insufficient and unable to accomplish contentment in your heart. You need the very power of God to do a miracle in your heart to get you to the point where, where you can say with Paul, I can have a lot, I can have a little, and in both situations, I can be content. What does Paul show us in Philippians 4 if not the reality that Paul's stuff doesn't have his heart? See, that's only the work of grace because our stuff vies for our heart. Our money demands the attention of our heart all the time. Jesus talks about this all the time, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Don't invest in things that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but invest in things where you have treasure in heaven. So for Paul to come to this point to recognize that when I give, I'm facing this temptation that my heart is finding its support and its strength in my money rather than in God. And what I need to do is give in such a way that I rely on God who will only and always be strong to give me grace in every single situation so that God can actually work contentment into my heart. Isn't that great news? See, I can't even give and create contentment in my heart. I need to give and rely on God, and it's God who says, I'm with you, I can support you, I can sustain you. Now, you with me so far? So that you may abound in every good work, as it is written. Now, as it is written, you got a, you got a cross-reference there? You should have a cross-reference in verse 9 that takes you back to Psalm 112. You with me? You got that? Turn back to Psalm 112. So Paul has said contentment is something only God can do by his strength. And then he's going to give you another picture. That just scan Psalm 112 real quick. Psalm 112 is about the godly man who delights in the commandments of the Lord. And if you, if you just scan through that psalm, you see him mention money three different times in this passage. So by the time he gets to verse 9, which he quotes in 2 Corinthians, he says that he is distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Here's the picture of somebody who greatly delights in the commands of the Lord. Here's a picture of somebody who relies on a God who is sufficient and strong on his behalf. A God who gives grace at every time, in every place, in every way, in every season to allow every good work to go forward. And this beautiful picture of Psalm 112 is this individual who is rooted in the delight and the commandments of God. He's rooted in God. Therefore, his life explodes in righteousness outward. So that the psalm begins in those who delight in the law of the Lord. And the psalm ends, if you look at verse 10 in 112, that the wicked man sees it and is angry. 
He hates that someone's life might be so controlled by God that they would be generous and freely giving toward the poor. So come back to 2 Corinthians. Why does Paul use this? Because Paul gives you a cheerful giver, which may be, listen, many of us may not feel like we're cheerful givers. And then he gives your confidence and roots it in the power of God who's able to make all grace abound to you in every situation, season, time, place for every opportunity he would give. And then he reminds us of something that he's already said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is that our spiritual life and our financial life are brought right together. He says that Christians who are rooted in the strength of God, who are confident in God's grace for them, will open their hands to the poor and become like the very God who has called them. What do you think? Do you think Jesus was a cheerful giver? Do you think God is a cheerful giver? Do you think God loves dispensing grace to his people? I mean, this really messes with our perspective on who God is. Do you think God's up there like with the, one of those, you know, the abacus? Uh, 38, uh, 39. They need 28 more cents. 38, 39. They need 2 million. Is, that, is God just kind of a grumpy uh, accountant in the sky? No. From the mouth of babes, right? Right, we need somebody on the outside to say, what is our view of God when it comes to our money? Do we believe that God is able and sufficient to give us grace at all? Or are we like little squirrels worried about $28 here and $16 there and I've got to write this thing, I've got to be faithful, I've got to be a good steward. One of the greatest, I think, dangers of sort of Christian folklore is believing that our giving is fundamentally stewardship and not fundamentally a generous distribution of the grace of God that we've received. That worries me because it turns our giving into this stingy stewardship rather than the lavish, look at what it says. He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Because when my financial life and my spiritual life are in line, I am exhibiting the very righteousness that's been given to me by grace. If my financial life is out of whack with my spiritual life, what I have to ask is what is our view of God? Do we believe that God lavishes his grace upon us? Do we believe that God is able to provide grace in the various situations and seasons of our life to meet our needs when we sacrificially give so the sake of God's mission and purposes go forward? Is God even involved in that or is our giving stupid? Is our giving just spiritual foolishness? Because we really don't believe God's over there. We really don't believe God's on the other side. We really don't believe God's involved. And Paul gives you Psalm 112 to go, here's an individual who lives with integrity. Here's somebody who really believed that God is into the dimes and nickels of our life. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower. Now this is how he started the illustration, right? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Now let's just make an observation. You don't get bread out of seed. Right, you gotta sow the seed, you gotta wait, you gotta water it, the sun's gotta grow, it's gotta grow, it's gotta mature, the wheat's gotta come into ear, it's gotta come into harvest, we gotta separate the wheat from the chaff, we gotta take the wheat and we gotta grind it, we gotta make flour, we gotta put it in the oven with the egg and the butter and whatever else you use to make bread. And on the other hand, you get what? You get sustenance, you get our daily bread. What did God just say? Why does Paul give us this picture? He who supplies seed for the sower and bread. He says, God's involved with the entire economic industry. I think this is hard for us in the, in the industrialized West because not many of us make our living based upon farming and agriculture. We make our living on systems and economies of scale and situations that provide us opportunities to make money that are relatively disconnected from the very principle that Paul began with. The very principle Paul began with is a principle of waiting, patience, sowing, looking, staring, watering, waiting, going to bed, waking up, hoping to God 
that some drought or some locust or some famine or some drought doesn't totally decimate my crops. And if you are in Paul's day and you rely on the seasons and the winds and the rain and all of the earth to produce what you need, then you would recognize that it's God who supplies the seed and at the end of the day, when we put the food in our mouth, it's God who supplied it at the end. See, God takes responsibility for every single economic endeavor. Read Deuteronomy 8. Read 1 Corinthians 4, where God says, you don't make money. It's me who gives you the ability to make money. 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? Imagine right now all of the things in your life, in your vocation, that result in you getting a paycheck that are not dependent on you. You work, but there are people you work with. There are decisions that are made by bosses. There's economies that happen that reach points of um, hard times and points of plenty. And we all work in economic systems. We all work in our vocations, trusting that God is above and over those economic systems. So Paul says, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will do what? He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your what? Righteousness. Listen, what, don't miss the promise. He just talked about righteousness in Psalm 112. He says, I will provide the seed and I will provide the bread and I will not only multiply your seed for sowing. I'm sorry. He will, uh, he will what does it say? He will, uh, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, which means it's God who's at work in, by his grace to give us the desire to be able to participate with the money we have to invest in God's purposes. And then God per promises to supernaturally expand the harvest so that your life might more come in line with the individual of Psalm 112. Do you want to be free from your stuff? Do you want to be truly and authentically content with where God has you? Then it's going to come from a God who is over every single economic system from seed to bread. He can do that in your life. He promises to do that in your life. You know, I love telling my kids prayers that we know God for sure will answer. There's not one time in your Bible where somebody comes to Jesus Christ and asks for forgiveness and Jesus goes, hang on, go away. No. So I say, I tell my kids, any time that we ask God for forgiveness, do you know what his answer is? Yes. In fact, Luke 15 tells us there's more joy in heaven among the angels over one individual who repents than many who don't. Then when you repent, heaven explodes with joy. What did Paul just say here in verse 10? That God loves to supply your needs and give you opportunities to expand and bring your life financially in line with the spiritual life and the grace that God has given you so that he will explode righteousness out of you as we become men and women of integrity when it comes to our finances. Verse 11, he goes on. You'll be enriched in every way. There it is again. Would you like to be enriched in every way, both spiritually, material, materially, financially? You'll be enriched in every way to be what? To be able to finally get that beach house on IOP. You'll be enriched in every way so that finally you can get that Corvette. Why in the world does God give Christians money? 2 Corinthians 9 verse 11. You will be enriched in every way. Enriched financially, enriched spiritually. So that your spiritual life and your financial life come together, you'll be enriched in every way to be what? Generous. Why in the world does God give you more than you need? Here's the answer. Now, do you feel how hard it is to be cheerful? Don't you feel that temptation right now? What do you mean I have more than I need right now, Steve? What are you saying? I'm supposed to give it all away? Are you supposed to, Steve, what are you saying? Are you saying that God has purposes for my wealth beyond what I could ask or imagine? Are you saying, Steve, that God has a plan, an agenda to use the financial wealth that he's put into my hands to be able to accomplish something that I never could and to do something in me that I could never could? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. 
I'm saying if you really want to be free from the grip that your finances and your material wealth have on your heart, you must give. There is no other pathway. Because only when you give do you access and you lean on the very strength of God who promises to enrich you in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us, watch this, will produce thanksgiving to God. That's what Alonzo quoted right there. He says it wasn't the money, it was that God cares about us through the other people of God in a time and place that I don't know and that I may never meet. See, giving is not ultimately, for the Christian, giving is not ultimately just a me and God thing. There's massive implications, right, for, for where, how our hearts actually get to be content and generous. Yes, amen. But all through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul has been continuing to push the fact that you have an opportunity to bless people in a place that you've never seen and you may never met. And when you do that, you will create in them not a thanksgiving toward you, but a thanksgiving toward God. Look at how he explains it in verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. That's not, we aren't just into making sure that the needs of the saints are met in another place. We aren't fundamentally Christian communists so that we are into wealth distribution. It's way deeper than that. It's way more important than that. Because we're not just into meeting physical needs. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Imagine that your material and financial wealth might be leveraged into God's purposes such that people who receive it would find greater joy and greater fulfillment and greater thanksgiving of God. That's the opportunity our financial lives have to make in the spiritual lives of other people. It's not just meeting their needs, but it's that you can stoke the fires of their hearts so that their heart would respond in worship to God for who he is and what he has done for them. Paul uses two terms in verse 12. The ministry is one. It has to do with service. He's used it back in 2 Corinthians 8 when he talked about begging for the favor of taking part in the relief or the service of the saints. That's what the Macedonians did. We want to be a part of meeting the needs. But Paul says something else. He uses a different word that is translated service in this passage, and it's the same word from which we get liturgy. It's used of priests ministering in God's temple. So Paul says that this service that you are giving is not just blessing the people, but it's being used by God to stoke the spiritual lives of other people. You are becoming a priesthood, somebody who is helping someone else's spiritual life along so that it is pleasing not just to the saints of God, but it's also pleasing to God himself. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, when they see your giving, and they say, this church loves us. This church is gripped by the grace of God. This church understands something about God that causes us to thank and give uh, thanksgiving and joy back to God. They, verse 13, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. What a great phrase. So now you're watching Paul deal with the cheerfulness issue that we have in our heart. You're watching Paul deal with what we really believe about God, whether or not he really truly will meet our needs, whether or not when we give, God won't also give us more opportunities and more financial strength to be able to continue to meet needs. Now he says the epicenter of that work in your heart starts to explode out into other churches. And Paul paints this picture of these other churches receiving this gift. And he says, they are glorifying God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. All true giving flows out of the heart of people who have been changed by the gospel of Christ. Do you know that? This has been Paul's point all throughout. This has been Paul's point back in chapter 8. When he's talked about Christ, and he said, he who was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
And now this church submits themselves to the glory and the beauty and the generosity of Jesus Christ to be able to open their hands in an authentic, sacrificially generous way to meet the needs of others. And the other churches stand up and say, glory to God. Fourteen. While they long for you and pray for you. What does giving do for the people of God? It creates relationships. It creates a church that responds with, we are so thankful that God is at work in those people. And we so long to see them and we pray for them that God would continue to do a work in their hearts so that they might be free. Do you see too... When we looked at that word sufficiency, that word contentment, that biblical contentment doesn't make us financially independent. Biblical contentment makes us financially invested in others and dependent on others because it pulls us into this relationship with God where we rest upon his strength and his ability and we long to meet the needs of other people so that our hearts are wound into the spiritual lives of other people. Financial independence never moves you toward people. It never knits your hearts together. When I was on that call with Alonzo, you could feel our hearts being drawn to what God was doing in El Lugar. All because we gave. That our hearts now are knit together in a new and more important way because we long to see them and we long for God to do what only he can do in them. And they respond back to us and say, to God be the glory for what he's doing in you. They long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. You don't know this until Paul writes his next letter in the book of Romans. But the Corinthian church comes through. In Romans 15, Paul talks about the Corinthian church being pleased to make a gift for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And the greatest news that we can hear as pastors, as leaders, as Christians is to see that the grace of God has gotten a hold of other people. So Paul closes this whole section on giving really with worship and thanksgiving because he's taken us all the way from the principle of giving. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. You sow from blessing, you will reap a blessing. And he takes us into the sufficiency of God for all times and all places for every single possible good work that we could do, promising always to meet our need, to increase our righteousness, to bring our lives more in line with what he is trying to do, who he is trying to create in your heart the image of Christ. You know what Paul says in Galatians, the very first letter he writes, he says, oh, Galatians, with whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Do you know what God is trying to do in your financial life? He's trying to make you more like Christ. He's trying to move you into greater dependence, greater uh, opportunities to walk by the Spirit, greater appreciation for his lavish grace that he has given to you. And the only way that that is going to happen when it comes to our finances is opening our hands to be able to give so that Paul closes this section being filled with thanksgiving to be able to say thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So that from the beginning in 2 Corinthians 8.1 all the way to the end in 2 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says the whole thing is from grace. The whole thing is what God is doing in your life. The whole thing is what God is doing in your heart. The whole thing is what God is reminding you of in his sufficiency and his grace and his ability to be able to meet all of your needs and provide opportunity for God to use you in the lives of other people. Imagine if Citadel Square, if our ambition as a church wasn't just spiritual growth, wasn't just the formation of Christian character, but God began to do a work in our midst where we began to be recklessly committed to meeting the needs spiritually and financially of other people. Can you imagine the testimony of a church like that? Can you imagine men and women being so recklessly committed to the purposes of God, so unreasonably committed that they would open their hands cheerfully to meet the needs and give of what they have to be a part of every good work in every single opportunity God could give us. 
And if that picture grabs you in your heart, we have great confidence because God promises to answer those desires with yes. Amen? God says, yes. If that's what you want, I will give you more and more opportunities to enrich you in every way, to make you generous in every single way. That's what I want for myself. I don't want my stuff to have me. I don't want my financial life to have last say in my heart. But I want to lean on God. I want to lean on the people of God and have God use what he's put in my hands for the sake of moving his purposes forward. And I pray that's true of us as a church. Father, we need 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We know that so often we wrestle with the temptation toward stinginess rather than sincerity and generosity. And Father, I'm glad that you give us truth to build our lives on, truth to build our financial lives on. Father, thanks for this text that reminds us of your grace, that reminds us of your complete sufficiency and strength. So even now, if we are struggling with stinginess and the desire to hold on to what we have because we believe it's our safety and our security and our comfort, Father, I pray that you would make yourself seen to the eyes of our heart as the one who is completely sufficient, the one who is lavish in generosity, the one who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, to give us lives of integrity. Father, we pray that, we, that our lives financially and spiritually might come together, that we would be men and women of integrity, that we would be truly Christian in the very center of our hearts, that we would be cheerful givers, generous towards those who are in need. And Father, we can't do that of ourselves. We can't do that through discipline. The only thing that we can do is plead for your grace. Would you make us generous? Would your sufficiency and your strength toward us capture our attention and our affections that we would be men and women of courage and strength and generosity towards those in need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.